Go ahead, can you hear? Boy, that really jumps off the page, doesn't it? Um, welcome back, and I, I, I just appreciate everyone being here with us. And um, tonight we're going to take on another nice, easy topic, um, which is why do the innocent suffer? And uh, I'm going to try to leave a little bit more time, extra time, after, after this lesson um, for questions. Um, because if there is a question that people have universally about God, this is maybe the most popular one if you want to use that term. It may be the most controversial one. I mean, all of these questions, all 12 of them are very, very difficult. Um, but there's no doubt that when it comes to the psyche of every human being, one of the questions they ask about God is, why do innocent people suffer? Um, before we get into that, I would like to tell you that this is not simply a Christian worldview problem. This is a problem that any worldview has. Whether you are atheistic in your approach to your life, whether you are Buddhist, Hindu, Jewish, no matter what it is, every religion or ir- every religious or irreligious person has to have an answer for this question. And frankly, the answers are very difficult to come by at times. And as we go through this, what we're going to do is try to give you the best explanation possible from a biblical worldview as to why these things happen. And I guess most importantly, when we talk about suffering and, and people that are hurting, the one thing that has to come to our mind more than anything else is the word compassion. And things happen to people all the time. Uh, suffering to one person may look a little bit different to another person. Uh, it always looks a lot worse when it happens to you as opposed to happening to someone else. I think many times in the Christian community, we've been really, really good about telling people we'll pray for them and we'll love on them. And yet, it looks different when they go through it. And we have this kind of, I'm going to call it church speak with people. And it's very difficult for someone that's in the middle of that to accept that and feel good about it. Because this causes people to do one of two things in a lot of cases. It causes, if, the, if you go through a trial and you go through suffering, it usually causes people either to run to God or to run from God. And if we're looking at and talking to someone who is already skeptical about this, um, it's going to be even harder for them. I, I, and, and part of the preparation for this, I ran across a video. We're not going to show the video tonight, but it, it was a comedian. And he was talking to, on a talk show with someone, and he said, you know, I am this close to being an atheist. And, and she pressed the question a little bit, and she said, well, why do you feel that way? And he said, well, I, I mean, I look around the world and I see this and I hear this every time I go to church, what do we say? We say, God is good all the time. Right, all the time God is good. And he brought up the, uh, the African slave trade. And he said, slavery, God is good all the time. 400 years, people were in chains. God is good all the time. He goes, I think God may be good some of the time, but don't tell me all the time. And he had some choice words for God in that. And then the lady said again, well, why are you saying that you haven't quite crossed over to atheism yet? And he said, well, then I look around the world. 
And I look at nature. And I see this beauty in nature. And I think, that didn't just happen. There's got to be a God that would do something like that. But why is there suffering? He brought up church shootings that had taken place. He said, Dylan Roof goes in and shoots up a church in South Carolina. He said, during the Civil Rights Movement, there were four little girls killed in their own church. He said, the church is the place of all places God's supposed to keep you safe in the church, right? And yet these things happen even in his building. So God is good all the time. And he really, really struggled with that. But he was also, on the same token, he was struggling just as equally with the thought of giving up on God, too. And so what we want all of our, us to be able to do is to be able to maybe move the needle a little bit and just have some questions for them. And again, this is not something that every, every, any religion can answer. Now, when you ask what a worldview is, a worldview is a set of values that is so basic, you see everything in your life through that worldview. So, and, and, and Mike could probably speak into this more than I can. There's a lot of people in science that everything goes through the prism of science. If you're an atheist, everything goes through the prism of there is no such thing as God. And then you've got to ask yourself, if God doesn't exist, does evil exist? And that's a very difficult question for someone that holds an atheistic worldview to answer. And it's, it's a little bit easier for those of us that are Christians. But again, we set ourselves up because we say that God is good. And so people have questions that a good God. Now, it would probably be easier on us as believers if we decided to say, well, we only are going to follow the Old Testament God. You know, the God that if anybody was disobeying him, his wrath would fall upon them. And that, was, that would be real easy. Then we could answer why bad things happen. Because God did allow bad things happen to his people plenty. And then grace abounds with us, and we say God is good, and so people want to know why. So suffering, though, when we get into this, it implies um, the existence of evil. And if you look into what evil is, evil does not have an existence of its own. It's a corruption of that which already exists. Profound immorality, wickedness, depravity, especially when regarded as a supernatural force. In general, the context of the absence of good is what evil, you can look at evil as. It's a hole in something that should be solid. It's a lack of something that should be there in relationship uh, between good things. Um, then the question becomes, what is it that allows evil to exist? So, what we're going to do is start with the biblical worldview on why evil exists and how it exists and if God allows it to exist. Um, after the fall, God's original plan was shattered and the status of all creation changed. And that's an important thing to note because we, can go, we will never understand fully God's grace until we understand fully our own depravity, Right? We have to know what our standing is up against the standard of God before we'll understand how much his grace and had the fullness of his grace. And so when the fall took place, God had created what he had called good. And then man made a conscious choice to disobey God. And in that moment, the status of everything in the world changed. All of the creation changed. The relationship between God and man changed. 
The earth was cursed and everything in it. So that status was completely altered, is what we learn in Genesis. Um, But God's love for us is so great that he gave us and he took it upon himself to give us a way to get that status back. And that's what was realized at the cross. That God wanted to change our status back into perfection as seen through the blood of Jesus Christ. So the status of the world completely changed at the fall. And if the story of Scripture is true, we are created to glorify God in all that we do. We can't explain why bad things happen any more than we can explain why good things happen. Um, we're his creation, and he perfects us. And these are, I'm going to swipe these broad strokes, and then we'll come back to them a little bit later. And suffering, though, and evil is nothing more than a byproduct of a fallen world. God didn't create evil. The question is, does he allow it? Now, there are some really smart people that this has hung them up. And they cannot get past this idea. This is a picture of Bart Ehrman. Uh, Bart Ehrman wrote, he's written many, many books. Uh, he's got, he is a, uh, the head of the um, Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He's written, and there's a, there's a handout um, in your notes uh, that, is, that is really his testimony um, in regards to why he walked away from God. He believed that he was a Christian at one time. Uh, he's got an incredible resume. I mean, he, I mean, he is a well-respected professor at what he does. He, he wrote uh, Misquoting Jesus. Uh, he wrote a book called God's Problem. Um, and just to surmise what he had to say here, he came to a point where I could no longer believe. I realized that I could no longer reconcile the claims of faith with the facts of life. I came to a point where I simply could not believe that there is a good and kindly disposed ruler who is in charge of it. There are similar stories from men who, uh, there's one gentleman by the name of Charles Templeton. I don't know if you've ever heard of Charles Templeton. If you've read Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Faith, he's a, a key figure in that. Charles Templeton was supposed to be the next Billy Graham. He was about three years older than Billy Graham. He recruited Billy Graham. They went to the same seminary. And um, Charles Templeton was going to be the next great evangelist at a time in this country where Religious programming was put on primetime television. They would have religious programming all through primetime television back in the 50s. And Charles Templeton was the guy. And one day, he saw a cover of Life magazine, and there was a starving child from Ethiopia or Africa or something like that. And he looked at that, and he said, there's no way a loving God could be allowing this to happen. And he walked away from the faith. And he ended, up, he ended up writing books um, about why he walked away from God. I can't remember the exact title. Was it Walking Away from God? <laughs> turning from God? Was it Turning from God? I can't remember. But Templeton wrote it. And um, he, he, he passed away now, but he gave up on God because he couldn't figure out why God would allow suffering to take place. Bart Ehrman and so many others, so many of... Uh, the predominant atheists in the world that are militant atheists that are speaking out against Christianity and religion in general are fall into that same category. Um, there's two kinds of evil that generally exist in the world that are virtually universally recognized. One is a moral evil. 
which is mankind's um, inhumanity to man, genocide, war, murder, and then there's natural evil, um, storms, uh, earthquakes, you know, tsunamis, all the different things that take life. Uh, Nashville, Tennessee, tornado hits in the middle of the night, 25 people die. People want an explanation for that. God could have stopped that. Why didn't he step in? If there's going to be a time he could step in, why wouldn't it be there? Why would he allow these things to happen? Um, so as far as speaking into religious or irreligious people, there's basically three points of view that we look at when it comes to evil. And one is an atheistic point of view um, that evil exists and God doesn't. And their premise is simple. If God is a loving God, he could stop evil, and yet evil exists, so God must not exist. That's the atheistic point of view. Um, that's the premise. Um, they have a hard time answering themselves why evil exists. And I'll get to that in a minute, and I'll explain something that, that's, that's almost laughable when you hear it if it wasn't so sad. Um, but the only way they know how to eliminate that is to eliminate God. You have to eliminate God from the equation. The second option is that God exists and evil doesn't exist. That's more of a pantheistic point of view. Hinduism, Buddhism, some of the Eastern philosophies, the way that they eliminate evil is by saying there's no such thing as evil, it's all an illusion. And that good is also an illusion. And everything is a God depending on which one of the religions that you'll see. And again, we'll dive deeper into these. I'm just kind of outlining them for you here. And the third is that God and evil exist, and there is an explanation, which is theism, um, which is, and, and there's different types of theism. Within the, within the word theism, you'll find uh, different subcategories of that, and we'll talk about it, and our point of view will be what we call a biblical theism. Um, whoops. Okay, the atheistic, well, let me go back one. The way this works is, if you tap on it, it moves forward. If you swipe it, it moves back. And there's a little delay. Am I right? I don't know if I am. I'm going one more. Perfect. Okay. All right. That's the atheistic worldview that we just talked about. If God is all good, uh, he will destroy evil. If God's all powerful, he can destroy evil. Evil's not destroyed. Therefore, there is no all good, all powerful God. Now, um, when C.S. Lewis lost his wife to cancer, and I haven't read this book. I read The Problem of Pain, if you've ever read any of Lewis's works. Uh, he also wrote another one that's called... Um, uh, what? A Severe Mercy. He wrote A Severe Mercy. The other one, what was the other one we were trying to read on vacation? A Grief Observed. Thank you. Um, I haven't got to, I didn't get to that one, but I had a friend that started to read it while we were on vacation, and she quit. She said, this is too sad. I don't want to read it anymore. And it was really a reflection on his own life. And he'd lost his wife to cancer. And Lewis was mad at God about it. Now, he proclaimed to be an atheist. And so he was having lunch 
with his good friend J.R.R. Tolkien. And Tolkien, who was a Christian, asked Lewis the question, what are you mad at? You don't believe in God, and you're crying out upset with God for letting your wife die. What are you mad at? If there is no God, and, and that's where that, that was the spark that ignited C.S. Lewis, his introspective look into himself, and he couldn't answer the question, what was he mad at? And if you're an atheist, if you say that evil exists and you acknowledge that evil exists, you have a problem. Because you do not have a better explanation for why these things happen than any other worldview does. Yours may be worse. Um, the, the gentleman you see here, and, and by the way, this is what I do on a Saturday morning sometimes. I watched a debate between that gentleman. His name is Peter Adkins. He's a professor at Oxford. And um, he's a devout atheist, and he's, he has gone on and on many times and debated William Lane Craig and some other predominant Christian um, apologists. And I, I give him credit for doing that. Um, but on Saturday mornings, like, I'll, I'll get up and I'll say, hey, that looks interesting, and I'll watch that. And it'll be a two-and-a-half-hour debate from 1998 between William Lane Craig and Peter Adkins. And I love that stuff. I was just loving it. So I was watch it was, and it was moderated by William F. Buckley. Of all people, it was very, yeah, it was very, and um, so anyway, this is what Adkins said when he was posed a question from the audience, and they asked the same thing that Tolkien had asked Lewis. He said, "What basis do you have for right or wrong? You don't believe that there's a God, so tell me what your basis for right or wrong is." And this was his quote. It, he asked if the, if the universe was unjust, and he said. Uh, uh, the injustice in the world is merely a violation of personal or individual preference, or is it a violation of grand and universal moral law? If there is no, if there is no God, then there is no basis for complaint other than personal opinion or, or inconvenience. Okay. He was asked what his basis was for it, and he said, my own morality, and I think this quote should be in your notes as well. He said, I can only speak as an atheist. And I base my own morality on whether or not I intrude on the aspirations of others. Whether he intrudes on the aspirations of others. So it begged another question. Well, how do you feel about what Hitler did to the Jews? That always tends to be the, you know, I mean, if you ask people who's the best person that ever lived, who would you say? Right. Okay. Outside of Jesus. Who would be the best person that wasn't partly God? Mother Teresa. Yeah, she's usually, she's number one on the list most of the time. And who's the worst person? Hitler. Okay, that's right. So the question came up for Hitler. And he said, well, and he was asked straight up, was what the Nazis did to the innocent Jews right or wrong? And he said, well, and he struggled for an answer. Because he knew he couldn't say certain things or he'd be tying himself, he'd be painting himself into a corner. So he said, well, it was wrong if you want to compare it the same way as an, a lion eating a zebra. Was a lion killing the zebra wrong? Well, if he intruded on the aspirations of the zebra, then yes, it was wrong by his own definition. And he said, well... Hitler did some things that intruded on the aspirations of others, so yes, I would say that that's wrong. 
He continued, unprompted to say, but let me say this. Mother Teresa has also intruded on the aspirations of others, and she has a lot to answer for as well. Now, I don't know why he just volunteered that, and it didn't make any sense to me. And I kind of set you all up with who's the best person that you've ever known, Mother Teresa. I don't know anybody who would say other than him that Mother Teresa, you know, was hurting other people in some way. But that was his point of view. So if you have an atheist worldview, it's very difficult for you to ask, answer that question. If you follow any fringe religious belief, um, you know, one that, if you've heard of Wicca, which is witches and warlocks and all that, I mean, they don't believe evil exists either. And so you can pose the question, then why do, then what about, what do you do with the Holocaust? What do you do with what uh, Pol Pot did in Cambodia? What do you do with Stalin and 45 million Russians being oppressed and, and, and murdered? What do you do with those things? And there's not a lot of good answers out there. And Christianity, and again, going back to what we've talked about in the past, Christianity really gives us the best possible answer that is consistent with Scripture, and it gives us a way to address the human condition to a degree. Um, okay, so the atheistic option is that, that God can't exist, acknowledging evil, but with a poor explanation as to why evil exists as well. But, out, but they don't believe God can exist. Now, the second option is that God exists, but evil doesn't, which is pantheism. Um, they solve the problem of evil by eliminating God. God is all and all is God. Uh, the pantheistic worldview is that God exists and evil doesn't. And that Now, what could contradict those types of ideas? Your personal experiences, right? I mean, even your day-to-day -day personal experiences, would you feel emotion. You feel pain. We feel happiness and sadness, and we, we go through all those emotions in our lives, right? So our personal experience doesn't allow us to believe that. On top of the, you know, there's actually scientific evidence that if you want to look at natural evil, for, to call it that, I think Mike will tell you that earthquakes have to take place in order for the earth to be an inhabitable planet. And there's other things that are byproducts of the fallen world, again, for our world to work. And, and, and what we see as evil, you know, nature sees as necessary. Um, and there's also legal and historical evidence for the fact that evil has existed. We, we watch things happen. And the things that are the hardest to explain uh, are the things that just seem senseless. And as we start getting, we're going to dive in a little bit more to the theistic view here in a minute. But when we, when we think about just the way things should be, just what maybe most people, and, and it's nice to have common ground with somebody that may not be a believer or may be skeptical on these things. And you do have common ground with them on this topic. It is universally difficult to answer these questions. And... Everybody can share a story of when bad things have happened to them. So you have common ground, and that's a great way to start, you know, witnessing and, and talking to someone. But um, when we start to look into this, uh, we have to ask ourselves, if these things are going to happen, if bad things happen to people, um, is there a purpose in it? We can maybe give an explanation for some things in nature, 
but it's very difficult to find a purpose in what appears to be a senseless tragedy. In our minds, the cycle of life is fine if we live to a ripe old age and we die at 90. What would most people say if you lived till 90? That's a good, that's a life well spent. That's a good long life. But how do we respond to the child that dies at four or five? That doesn't seem right to us. It doesn't seem to make any sense at all. And it's very difficult to make sense out of that. Um, but we're going to do the best we can. Um, okay, on the finishing up on the pantheistic worldview, it, the Bible also speaks into this. And I'm going to kind of say this earlier than I wanted to in, the, in, in this, but if you were going to, um, let's say you're, 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 you had a perfectly clean slate and you had no religious preference whatsoever. You were open to being an atheist. You were open to being a Christian. You were open to being Jewish. You were open to being a Buddhist or Hindu, anything. You were just trying to find out which religion worked just right for you. If you've ever watched the show Young Sheldon, that's what Sheldon tried to do one time. You remember that? You guys ever seen that one? I'll show you the video. Um, anyway, he, he read every one of the, the, of the holy books, and he was trying to figure out which religion was good, was best for him. And if you were doing that, the one thing that I would say to question yourself on is ask yourself which religion speaks into the human condition and which religion offers a diagnosis for our condition as human beings and then offers a remedy to that diagnosis. Which religion offers something into our spiritual condition or into the human condition, speaks into who we are? The Bible does those things. That's one of the great things about Christianity is it's testable. It's a historical religion, and you can test it. You can, you can and I don't mean that to test God. I don't mean to give, get into, you know, <laughs> to, to, uh, that way about it. But what I'm saying is just you can test to see if these things are right. We can look at evidence and point us in those right directions. Um, and the pantheistic worldview falls short because, as this quote here from within, uh, it w from it's from within, out of men's hearts, that come evil thoughts, immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. Um, so let's move now to the theistic worldview. That God exists and evil exists. And there's various views within theism. Now, um, one of them is finitism. That God is finite in his powers to defeat evil, therefore unable to control or stop it. And he would like to aid us, but he's not omnipotent or all-powerful, and therefore he's helpless. That is not what the Christian worldview holds to, obviously. Uh, there is dualism. Uh, dualism means that God and evil are co-eternal opposites, and evil is equal to God. That is also not the Christian worldview. And then there's one that's even called the evil God view, um, where God is all-powerful but sadistic and therefore not uh, omnibenevolent or all good. Um, there was a book, a very famous book written by um, a, a rabbi, uh, Harold Kushner, and this was his quote, that a powerful God who allows injustice is cruel. I would rather believe that my God stands for forgiveness and love and mercy, that he is our friend, not our enemy, that he does not want bad things to happen to us, but there are some things which God cannot prevent. Are we capable of forgiving and loving God despite his limitations. 
Um, again, that's just a matter of finitism. Um, but the theistic worldview appears to be the most realistic option or the most reasonable option. And the classical proposition restating what the atheistic view was, if God is all good, he would destroy evil. If God is all powerful, he can destroy evil, yet evil is not yet destroyed. Therefore, God will destroy evil someday. There is an all-good, all-powerful God who one day will destroy all evil. Um, here's a better way of explaining theism. Belief that God is greater than evil, that God is both all-good and all-powerful, but it does raise two questions, and those questions are about causation and cessation. Um, uh, why did an all-good, all-powerful God allow evil? That's, that's what's known as causation. We are free moral agents. God gave us the ability to make our own choices because a love relationship requires choice. It requires us to be able to make the decision to love or to turn away. God created the angels, and they worship him all the time. But when it came to mankind, he gave us the choice to be obedient and to follow him so we are free moral agents, and that's essential to every relationship. And since man chose disobedience, it led to a temporal and eternal consequences for all of us. Um, that is the causation of evil being in existence. And again, we'll dive a little bit deeper here in a minute. Um, why hasn't God put an end to evil if he can, which is known as cessation? And there's something that you're looking at, and this is really what we're able to see, um, partial elimination versus permanent elimination. So God in his great wisdom and his great patience is allowing us time to make a decision to come to him. And in the midst of all that, in this fallen world, when you have people that have opposing views, people have opposing ideas, people have opposing agendas, not everybody wants the same thing. And that's always going to leave open the, the, the possibility for evil to enter the world. And it comes in so many different forms. Um, if you look at the account of Noah, that's a great example of permanent versus, or um, uh, partial, thank you, I couldn't find the word. Uh, partial elimination versus a permanent elimination. The account of Noah, it gives an example of how actual evil was destroyed, but potential evil remained. Consequently, actual evil returned. returned. So if we're able to eliminate evil in some way, partially, it's going to come back. So God needed to give us a permanent solution to the elimination of evil. And that permanent solution was found on the cross. And it's funny because people ask questions about, well, you know, why did Jesus come at the time that he came? You know, the time that Jesus arrived, that only 2% of humanity had ever lived. So most of humanity has lived after the life of Jesus. So 98% of the people have had a time, and the people before that were speaking, in many cases, directly through God or through God's prophets, that he was speaking to them and getting to them. Um, 
but we have a promise that God one day he will destroy all evil, actual and potential evil. Um, the solution for here and now is Jesus Christ, his life, death, and particularly his resurrection, give hope, meaning, and purpose to the midst of trials and struggles. Um, again, love requires a choice, but those choices all have consequences for all of us. Um, we collectively and individually have chosen to reject God at some level, and the choice has consequences in the world that we see today. The, the, the origin of evil came from man who directed his will away from God and to his desires. Um, when evil entered the world, when humans sinned, again, temporal and eternal consequences fell. Um, two of God's attributes must be kept in balance to understand how he will resolve the dilemma. Now, Tim Keller at his church in New York, they do something after every church service that they have a lunch they call their skeptics lunch. And they invite everybody that heard the sermon to go to that lunch and come ask questions about what they just heard. And there was a woman there one time, and he was talking about um, God's love and God's grace. And she had a real serious problem with God allowing someone to be sent to hell. And so she started questioning him on that. And he looked at her and he said, let me ask you this. Do you have a problem receiving God's love or receiving God's grace? And she said, well, no. And he said, well, then why do you have a problem receiving God's justice? And that's, well, I don't know. I'll come back next week. You know, and that's kind of what happens. And they keep it in the conversation. But we have this tendency to want everything always to be good. But the problem is within this room, what one person sees as good may be seen as bad for someone else. When OU wins, that's good to some people. But there's, there's people shaking their head in here right now. Some people say that's bad. You know, and so everybody's got a different view and a different world. So God, but God told us who he was. Here's the difference between the God that we serve in Scripture and everybody else's explanation. God told us who he was. God gave us a perfect world, and we let it get away from us because we chose to turn away. And we still do today at some level, right? And God loved us so much, he threw us a lifeline. And he said, I know I created it perfectly, and you've blown it, but I love you so much, I'm going to give you a chance to get back in. And we continue to still ask these questions. God, why do you allow this to happen? You can perform a miracle like we learned last week. And yes, he can. But he also has to, he can also use these things in a good way for us as well. Um, our free will is our ability to decide between alternatives. God created us with freedom to choose love for him. Forced love is not love at all. Uh, that does not make God responsible for evil. He created the fact of freedom, and we perform acts of freedom. He left open the possibility of evil, and man makes evil actual. Remember when we first started talking, um, you know, evil is a corruption of something good. It is nothing in and of itself. Um, 
Some want evil to be destroyed, but evil cannot be destroyed without also destroying freedom. And love is impossible without freedom. Um, and you say, why doesn't God do something about this? Well, he revealed to us what is right and what is wrong. He gave us the law. And the commandments were something that allowed all of us to see there's a benchmark that we cannot receive, that we cannot achieve that. It allowed us to recognize that we were sinful human beings. He gave us a conscience so we know what's wrong. And we're taught that in Romans 2. He gave us power to do his right by his grace in Romans 8. Um, so God has told us all these things. And again, that's what makes Christianity different from some of the other religions out there is that we have that basis that we're looking for to find out what the answer may be, even though the answer may not satisfy us. By the way, it's okay if you're talking with someone that's been through suffering and you try to give them an answer and they've, they've, they've had to you know, deal with something tragic. It's okay if they look at you and they say, I'm not satisfied with that answer. How would you respond to someone that says, I'm not satisfied with your answer? What do you say to that? Fair? I used to get mad. I used to go, well, too bad. God's in charge, so live with it. And it wasn't very compassionate. But that's kind of the way I felt. Because I was along this road where... I had come to say, okay, God, if this is, uh, my faith in you is so strong that whatever you do, I believe in you still. And I'm right here with you. And yet, sometimes today, I think if I'm asked the same question, and someone says, well, I'm not satisfied with that answer, I think I might say, you're never going to be satisfied with the answer, neither am I. I'm not satisfied with it either. But I know God's not surprised. I know God has not been taken aback by what's happened here. I know God is in control. And I believe, as he teaches us, that someday this is going to be used for good. I have a good friend. Uh, I used to uh, work with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and, and he was on staff with me. And um, when his son was three years old, he developed a tumor at the base of his brain. And he fought that for about 18 months. And after the 18 months, it appeared that he was cancer-free. And they just, we were all praising God and how wonderful it was. And about 18 months later, um, his cancer returned. So you've got this boy, six, seven years old. Um, and I remember towards the end of his life, we were down there visiting our friends, and he was laid out in a living room. They had a makeshift bed that they'd put together there for him, and he was essentially catatonic. You know, his body was swollen from the medication that he'd been taking. Um, he could not involuntarily close his eyes. They had to care for him 24-7, putting eye drops in his eyes to keep him moist, and it was to the point where everyone was praying that God would just take him home. 
and we had lunch not long after he passed away, and, and I was sitting there talking to him, and, and this guy, is a, he was worked in the ministry, loved the Lord, wanted to tell other people about him. And he looked at me, and he said, if one more person comes up to me and quotes Romans 8.28, I'm going to punch him in the mouth. And he was serious, and I mean, I, I don't blame him. To watch your son go through that and the highs and the lows of it, you know. Oh, he's got this cancer. Why did this happen? God healed him. Praise God. The cancer's back. And he spent really six years of his life sick. Six of his nine years just sick. We're not going to be able to tell someone going through that something smart that's going to make them feel better unless they prompt you for those answers. One of my good friends also, when I was working with FCA, I got to know, his name was Harold Petrie. I'll tell you this story because he, he gave me permission to tell it. But Pete was the uh, coach at El Reno, ended up being a uh, uh, youth minister at First Baptist El Reno. And if you remember, several years ago, they were sending a couple of van loads of kids down to Falls Creek. And there was a horrible accident, and several of the kids were killed. And um, another youth minister here in town was a good friend of his as well. And they were, it was prior to a service taking place. It was really more of a morning time that so many of the parents and friends and, and, and the church members had come in, and they were just getting together and, and sharing their grief together. And the youth minister here in Norman drove out to El Reno, and he got to the room, and he looked across the room, and, and he saw Pete. And Pete was shaking hands and talking to people. And he, uh, he looked up, and they kind of locked eyes. And they'd been friends for a long time. And he just walked across the room, and he hugged him. Just grabbed him, and, and he put his arms on his shoulders, and he looked at him. And he turned around and walked out. And I talked to um, Harold about that long after it happened. And he said, you know, I've had a lot of time to reflect on all the things that were said to me and all the people that were praying and all that difficulty that we had right then. And he said, that hug meant more to me than anything. He said, I'll never forget it. The guy drove 45 minutes to come give me a hug. Not say a word and walk out. That will show God's love probably better than anything that could have been said in that moment. That's the kind of compassion that we have to bring forward for people so they'll at least say, maybe there is something that I can find good in all of this. Because it's hard to do. And again, if, it's, if all those people were elderly people that had lived a long life and loved the Lord and everybody knew they were in a better place, as we all like to say, everybody would have said that's fine. But that's not how it was viewed because it was a youthful person or youthful people that died and they felt like their lives had been cut short. Um, again, as I spoke to earlier, God sent his son to defeat evil officially at the cross, permanently at the cross. And we've never been given any guarantees that life was going to be good for us. 
Show me anywhere in Scripture that God says your life will be suffering free. You're going to be the lucky one that gets away with no evil being pronounced upon you. When he told people to follow him, when he went to the disciples, he said, I have no place to lay my head. I have no home. I have no money. I have only one thing to offer you. And by the way, if you follow me, you will die. And you will die with no money and no home and with pain. And yet they followed him. It's not exactly a, an exciting job opportunity. And that's what they did. But it was never guaranteed that evil wouldn't exist. God knew better. In Matthew 19, somebody came to him, and this is, an, this is a little bit of an ancillary concept, but if you remember in, in Matthew 19, a man came to him and said, is it okay to offer a certificate of divorce? You remember that? And Jesus did what he did a lot. He changed the narrative on him. And the first question you might ask yourself is, why was he going with him and asking the question? You got to figure maybe he, you know, he and his wife, you know, one of those deals he calls in the radio show and goes, hey, settle a bet for me and my wife. He was probably wanting to divorce his wife. And he wanted to go, well, we'll go to this guy and whatever he says we'll do. You know, they'll try to agree on that. So he goes and he asks him. And Jesus redefined marriage. He did what he always did. He changed the narrative because he, he discerned the heart of the person asking the question, and he changed the narrative. And he said, this is not, the, he, and he said that God, he created the male and female, and God is joined together, let no man separate. And then the guy came back and said, aha, but even Moses granted, granted certificates of divorce. And Jesus said, yeah, but that's not the way it was in the beginning. That wasn't the way it was planned. Evil exists in the world, but that's not the way it was from the beginning. God's plan was not for evil to take over, but he was going to give us free choice and allow the possibility for evil to happen. This is one of my favorite cartoons. This is a convicting little comic strip here. Um, if you can read that, it says, Sometimes I'd like to ask God why he allows poverty, famine, and injustice when we could do something about it. And he said, well, what's stopping you? And he says to his friend, I'm afraid God might ask me the same question. So how do we find purpose in suffering? Um, I wouldn't ever assume that God does not have some purpose for suffering as it exists. We don't always understand it. We don't always see it. Um, if you look at Joseph, when Joseph was living in the moment, sold into slavery, God had a plan. But that plan, the information was given to him on a need-to-know basis only. So he didn't understand in the moment what exactly it was he was going through. If you will ever understand what God did with Job, you're doing a lot better than I am. Satan is roaming around the world, and God offers Job to him. Job was the finest man in the world at the time, and God offered him to him. John 9, the man that was blind from birth, that's one of my favorite stories in Scripture. If you remember the story, a man was outside of the temple. He was a beggar. He'd been there his whole life. People all knew who he was. 
and Jesus came to him and the disciples asked the question, what were his sins or what were the sins of his parents that caused him to be blind? Why is he going through this suffering? What did he do wrong? Because the concept was that if you did something wrong, you were going to pay the penalty for that, and you could even be afflicted with something if your parents had sinned. And Jesus said, it's not that. He's been blind from birth for what you're about to see. And he healed him. That probably didn't make that man who was treated like a third-class citizen his entire life up to that point feel much better, but it sure made him feel good when his sight was given to him. And it was able to be used for God's glory. If the biblical story is true, then it all makes sense. If we've been created for God's glory and God's glory only, then whatever happens within his world, this can make sense. But it can really seem difficult to get through at times. Um, and I wish I had a better, a better answer for you than that. But if you remember in Job, uh, you go through about 39 chapters of finding out what happened to him and complaining, his friends going to him, telling him, look, just confess your sins. My gosh, God would do this for no good reason. Just tell us what you've done wrong. Supportive friends. And after it was over, God's response, if you remember, God went on for at least two chapters from my recollection, telling them who he, telling Job who he was and who man is in relation to him. But it wasn't the most compassionate answer. Believe me, the first time I read it, I didn't. I thought, okay, here, God's going to come to the rescue. He's going to come in and say, Job, it's okay. I'm going to give all this back to you. I'm loving on you. Thanks for hanging in there and being so good. His first words were, who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? That didn't feel compassionate, I'm sure. But when it was all said and done, Job said, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of, of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Uh, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Something happened so powerful in, in that moment with God that Job realized that he was a man, and God was still in charge the whole time. Um, what have we done? What have I done? It says save connection. I'm really trying to save the connection. I don't know what I hit, but um, okay. Mm, let's go to the next one. Um, so as silly as this may sound, the question um, is, okay, let's go ahead and go to the next one if we can, Josh. Um, can pain be a gift? Can pain be a gift to us? Um, in some cases, believe it or not, permitting evil actually helps defeat evil. Um, again, at the cross, the ultimate example of infinite injustice wrought upon an innocent man. There was good for all humanity and it overshadowed the evil that occurred at, at the crucifixion. Uh, God often alerts us to the fact that there are better things than misery. 
Without the sensation of pain, we can do extensive damage to ourselves and not realize it. You know, we can use fire to warm ourselves, but if we get too close to the fire, it can do damage, right? The sensation of pain means something to us. Um, God promised a permanent end to evil, and there's things that he does um, with this suffering to reveal himself to us. Josh, we can hit the next slide. Um, Number one, he reveals our spiritual condition through our suffering. He reveals who we are in Christ through our suffering. Uh, Number two, he humbles us with our suffering. I wish it were enough to say that as believers that we could understand that the one common denominator we all have as human beings is our sin. There's always going to be somebody, you know, taller, better looking, richer, more uh, successful in life. There's always someone that's going to be able to say, I have this and you don't have this, so because of this, I'm better than you. As believers, we realize our sin is a common denominator. It's the great equalizer for all of us, and it doesn't allow us to try to have a status above anybody else. God humbles us at times with suffering. Um, The third thing that he does is he draws us closer to him. How many times have we been in a difficult situation and we cry out to God? There used to be an old military saying that there's no atheists in foxholes. The closer we get to the front, sometimes the, the more we cry out to God in our need. We've all been Peter trying to walk on the water. We look at the world around us. We take our attention and our sights off of God and we begin to sink. And what do we do? Lord, save me. And so God can use that suffering for good as well. Um, All earthly suffering is temporary. And like parents discipline children, God will use our temporary suffering to draw us to him and take up eternal residence in heaven. Um, You know, we live in a foreign land. This is what the Bible teaches us. That we're foreigners here. If we have given our lives to Christ, and we are, our home is in heaven. So what we're doing here is serving God the best we can. But the world around us doesn't always want to do that. It's not a cooperative effort. And there are times where God wants to um, use the difficulties in our lives to uh, witness to other people. Uh, there was a, and th- this is going to sound very, very legalistic when I say this. There was a man that I know that worked in the ministry. He had a special ministry to a, the Chinese population here in town. Um, that man tragically lost a son. And there were many of the people that, and the Chinese that he was trying to minister to that were not believers. And while he was going through this tragedy in his life where his son was lost, there was a Chinese couple that he'd been ministering to for quite some time. And they had told one another, If that man continues to follow his God after the loss of his child, they said, I'm going to give him six months. They put a timeline on it. And they said, if he still follows God the same way that we've watched him this entire time after losing his son and dealing with that tragedy, we're going to believe in that God. Okay, that sounds very, very simplistic, doesn't it? 
Six months, his relationship had appeared to get stronger with God than it had before. And that couple came to him and said, this God that you serve must be the God you think he is. Because we have watched you. Essentially, they've been sizing him up the entire time. And he was the same man, if not a stronger Christian, six months after his son's death than prior to that. And they gave their lives to Christ. And are still serving the Lord today. You would have never seen that in that tragedy in the moment. Um, one of the best, um, I mean, there's a big difference between us knowing the purpose of evil and God having a purpose for evil. Um, let's go ahead and move to past the one more. There we go. Um, I heard a great sermon one time, and the sermon was about a rainbow. And when you think of a rainbow, what do you think? Not, well, not what you think of today a lot of times for a rainbow, but think of the biblical rainbow, God's promises to us, right? Um, and this picture kind of epitomizes what we would see. In a beautiful Oklahoma sunset, you might look out over the horizon and you would see a rainbow that looks like that. And in this sermon, uh, the pastor was talking about the fact that he was flying um, through a storm. And as they got, they broke through the clouds, uh, he looked off to the right, and he saw a rainbow. And he said, but it was a rainbow like I'd never seen before, ever. Go ahead and go to the next slide, Josh. That's what he saw. Because a rainbow is not a semicircle. If you get above the clouds, and however you're aligned to the sunlight... That's a rainbow. We see half the rainbow. And that's the way God deals with us. When we are in the midst of trial, when we're in the midst of tragedy, when we're in the midst of goodness, we can only see part sometimes of what God is doing. But God sees the fullness of that. Jesus spoke to people as if a guy that knew more than the people he was speaking to. And it's because he did. God knows more than we know. And as hard as it is to deal with suffering that exists in our world, it can be used for good. And again, to go back to Romans 8.28, it doesn't say God will free everybody from suffering. It says he can use it for good for those that love him. But going through it is the only way we're going to understand how to talk to other people about it. And the other great thing about it is we now have hope in Christ today because we have hope for the future. If you don't believe in God, if you have an atheistic worldview or you think that evil is simply an illusion and good is simply an illusion, I don't know what you're looking forward to. What is there to look forward to? If there's hope for the future, there's hope for the present. And we can find that through our faith. And again, when you're sharing this, if, if, you, if you have these conversations with people, allow them to bring it to you. Don't try to take it to them too hard at a difficult time. Sometimes just your presence there should be enough. Um, 
I'm going to read one quick thing to you, and I'm going to finish it up with a C.S. Lewis quote, which you never go wrong doing that. This is, this is from Kel, uh, Tim Keller's book, Walking Through, with God Through Pain and Suffering. One of the problems with our current Western culture view is that in the end, it is naively uh, optimistic about human life. As Susan Jacoby and others suggest, the main response of the secular person to evil and suffering is not to find some meaning in it or not to prepare to triumph over it in some future life, but to make the world better, to slowly but surely eliminate suffering right here. But the reason for all the emphasis on the here and now in the world is that secular, secularism has no other happiness to offer. If you can't find it here, there's really no hope for you. And that's very true. There's no hope for the future. And then one more, Josh. The, the, this quote from C.S. Lewis, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Um, as difficult as it can be for us to endure suffering and be in pain at times, God will sometimes use that for a greater good. So um, I'm going to leave it there, and if there's any questions, we'll try to answer that the best way we know how. All right. Um, we had quite a few questions come in on, on angels. Um, ah. So I, I need to ans ask this because we got several on this. But um, one was Satan is described as a fallen angel. Do angels have the same choice to love or turn from God that man has? Um, well, I guess Satan did. Um, you know, um, the, the, the doctrine of all that is, um, is one that's kind of hard to get our arms around at times. I think God created angels um, to praise and to protect. Um, so I, if, if you're a fallen angel, Lucifer made that decision. So a third of the angels with them it took took, took a few friends you know yeah. so <laughs> no, um, yeah I, I would say that um, uh, based upon that I guess they had that choice or some of them did anyway it seems fixed at this point that that choice was there at one point uh, the way I read that the scripture yeah. um, here's another question does God's justice demand death or is that man's justice no, I think I think it's it's pretty clear that that God's justice from the very beginning de demanded a sacrifice. Um, the the first at the fall of man, um, God provided that sacrifice, and that has always been the justice. And if you think about that, this is something that we read and it kind of goes quickly through it, um, and we just kind of skate right through. The, okay, there was animal sacrifice and things like that. Well, um, the animal did nothing wrong. The sacrificial lamb did nothing wrong. It was, it was uh, part of their culture, and they had accepted that. But imagine if, and try to take yourself back to the biblical times, if you were a young child and you had a lamb, and your dad walked up and said, this lamb's going, and that what, how that child would feel about that. There's some pain in that. That's a sacrifice. We, I think sometimes we read it and we hear it and we think, yeah, okay, you know, I'm, I'm used to hearing that. And we desensitize ourselves to that. But death was always part of forgiveness. Yeah. Without blood, there's not um, 
It's fish season. Uh, so here's another question. You said God left open the possibility of evil. Mankind makes evil actual. However, what about evil not made by mankind, like fatal illnesses or accidents? How would you explain that to a non-believer? Um, that's a great question. Um, if you remember when at the fall of man, the entire planet was cursed. All of the creation was cursed. Original sin is inherent in all of us. It's born with it. The whole world is cursed. And for those things that take place that, again, it doesn't necessarily make sense, but man didn't necessarily sin in specific instances, but the world is a cursed world that we live in. And we would all be living in the Garden of Eden if it hadn't been for the fall of man. So um, that sin, that thread continues through the natural world because of sin. That's the best way I would explain it. Yeah. And, and everybody has to face that question of, mm -hmm. of, of death and, and natural disaster. It's not just a, a Christian thing. It's, it's all world religions or all even atheists would have to answer that question. Absolutely, yeah. As well. So, yeah. well, thanks again, Tim. I uh, appreciate your presentation. This is a tough one. Um, if, you've, if you picked up the book, I'm glad you asked. There's, there's a lot more information in there. I encourage you to consider that. And um, next week, we, we have uh, a new question. Um, Josh, you throw that up on the screen. So it isn't Christianity just a crutch? Uh, why are so many... Why are there so many hypocrites? How many of you heard something to that degree? Have heard that question before? Yep. Um, so we'll be we'll be tackling that question, and I believe you guys are tag teaming, right, with Mike? Yeah, Mike is going to do. Uh, isn't Christianity a crutch? And I'm going to. I don't know why they selected me for this, but I'm going to do. Why there are so many hypocrites? Yeah. Are there hypocrites? <laughs> there are few. Present of them. company yeah. accepted, of course. Okay. So come back to that and bring a friend, we'd encourage you to come back and continue gaining knowledge, gaining good answers, uh, reasonable answers to uh, good questions. Uh, that's what we, we owe the skeptic and we owe ourselves as we have these conversations with those that are questioning faith. So we look forward to having you all come back. Let's, let's wrap up in a word of prayer. God, thank you again for your son, Jesus. Thank you for um, coming and making a way uh, possible for us to know you, uh, coming and taking the place of, of our sin, putting yourself as that substitutionary atonement for us. Um, Lord, when John the Baptist uh, saw you, um, he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So as you came and as you gave your life, um, freely and you lived out a life to prove that you are God, to show that you are God, uh, you also uh, went all the way to the cross and died and took the place of our sin. And Lord, Lord we know that um, since that point on, in time, um, there's no more animal sacrifices. Uh, the curtain was torn, um, the veil was, and and everything changed from that point forward. It's, it's, it is finished, it is over. And your resurrection three days after gave us uh, complete uh, 
victory over death, and that victory that, that, that you had over death also is ours as we put our faith and trust in you. So God, thank you for that. Um, Lord, in the midst of our trying times and the, the suffering that we see in our world and we see to the innocent, Lord, help us to be um, your ambassadors. As Tim shared, sometimes words may not be necessary, but our presence may. We don't always have the, the answer to why, but we know who. And we can, we can go to you, Lord, and we can remember the things that, um, that are true of you. And so, Lord, help us to do that in bringing comfort, in bringing truth, in bringing your word. And Lord, through your spirit, uh, use us to comfort a hurting world. Lord, you've comforted us in the past with your love and your grace through your Holy Spirit and through your church in so many other ways. Lord, allow us to be uh, your ambassadors in this for others. And use this as, as, a, as conduit, as a, as a pathway to point them and connect them to Christ. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.